Well, the new year is almost upon us, and with the season of holiday shopping almost behind us, many people are forming the resolution to be better with money next year. So suppose you're looking for some advice on how to make better financial choices. Despite their many attractive qualities, you probably wouldn't seek out a philosopher for help. We're just not known for being good with money. In fact, this reputation isn't new. David Dick is a professor in the philosophy department and the business school at the University of Calgary. He tells the story of Thales, a philosopher born in 620 BCE. One of the few fragments we have of him was that he wanted to demonstrate to everyone that he was smart enough to make money, just not interested in doing it, right? So he bought up all the olive presses, having predicted that the olive, there was going to be a run in the olive market, made a killing in the olive pressing market one year, at, got all of this money, and then gave it all away to go do philosophy, just to prove that he could do it if he wanted to. He just didn't want to. Mm -hmm. So being too interested in money has been seen as anti-philosophical for a really long time. And that that's a story that philosophers look at with a lot of pride, where they say, like, well, look, we're smart enough to make money. We just know that there are more interesting and better things. Um, viewed from another perspective, we're just really stupid because Thales made a bunch of money and then just threw it away. So he doesn't really understand how, how money even works. That's so as, as a philosopher also semi appointed in a business school, right? I can sort of see the other way that philosophers look, um, not very right. Anybody you want to ask about money, don't ask a philosopher because they don't know what they're doing with it. David is trying to be the exception to the rule that philosophers know nothing about money. He has more or less on his own invented a new area of research, the philosophy of money, which looks at how philosophy can identify and inform various questions about money. Well, in this episode, we dive headfirst, Scrooge McDuck style, into philosophical questions about money. Now, I know the financial questions you all have. Is Bitcoin in a bubble? Can the current bull market continue? And how do you even go about buying all of press futures anyway? We're going to set those pressing questions aside in favor of some deeper issues. In the first part of this episode, we're going to look at some of the general philosophical questions about what money literally can't buy. In part two, we're going to focus on a specific ethical issue, whether there should be a market for kidneys. And then in part three, we'll hear from a philosopher who thinks too much attention is given to money over another good, free time. By the end, I hope you'll agree that the costs are worth it. From the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto, this is Open Questions. I'm Eric Matheson. And I'm Jeremy Davis. David breaks the philosophy of money into two general categories. There are metaphysical claims about what money cannot buy, and there are moral claims about what money should not buy. For an example of the metaphysical claim, think of the song Can't Buy Me Love. When Paul McCartney sings, I don't care too much for money because money can't buy me love, he's making a metaphysical point. Love just isn't the type of thing you can buy, no matter how much you spend. So, um, aside from the songs and the common intuition, there are philosophers who have actually said a few things about this as an aside when they were moving on to other questions. So most often if you find a philosopher saying, well, here is something money can't buy, they're not making a metaphysical claim. They're actually making a moral claim, which is something that like, well, here is a thing that of course you could exchange for money, but you shouldn't, right? So most often it's something like, well, um, you know, uh, money can't buy sex. Um, of course it can. What they're expressing is that it shouldn't, that there's something immoral about prostitution. Um, many of these discussions are set up with, with briefer, intuitive discussions about, well, maybe there are some things that you can't exchange for money. 
Um, Michael Sandel, for example, has a book called What Money Can't Buy, um, which is mostly a book about what money shouldn't buy. But in it, he does have a discussion of a few things that he thinks cannot be purchased. So he lists Nobel Prizes, friendships, and he also thinks that you cannot buy a speech if you're the best man at a wedding. Sandel explains that the reason these items can't be bought is that paying money corrupts them. If I try to pay Jeremy to be my friend, the act of paying corrupts the friendship so that he isn't really my friend anymore. David has a bit of a different take on this, though. He thinks that the goods aren't merely corrupted. They're actually transformed. So uh, what I've come up with is a theory of what I call transformable goods. Transformable goods are the kind of things that transform when you exchange them for money. Um, You basically destroy them in the process of trying to buy them or sell them. And for that reason, it's literally impossible to exchange them for money. So consider something like the Nobel Prize. Um, Presumably, we think that you can't buy a Nobel Prize um, because the Nobel Prize is the kind of thing that should be given freely to someone out of recognition for their accomplishments. Um, So if you get one that you just bought, (laughs) well, it wouldn't really be a Nobel Prize. That view is sort of the idea that, well, the Nobel Prize has these essential characteristics. Um, A Nobel Prize, in order to be real uh, or in order to survive as an identical kind of object, has to be distributed in recognition for uh, your accomplishments. If it's instead exchanged just in exchange for a large amount of money, well, then it isn't a real Nobel Prize. So to figure out whether a good has been transformed, we just have to figure out what its essential properties are. Some philosophers love this kind of project. For example, in our episode on achievement, one of the main issues we discussed is what makes something an achievement. In other words, what are the essential features of achievements? But David thinks that something's essence doesn't need to be universally agreed upon. He thinks that there are really two different questions. There's one question about, well, what is the essence of that object? What's the essence of friendship? What's the essence of a Nobel Prize? What's the essence of a best man's speech? Well... In the case of the Nobel Prize, I think lots of us think about it as having these essential characteristics that it has to be given in recognition for one's achievements. But suppose there was somebody who said, suppose there was a very, very wealthy billionaire who had recently become president of the United States and said, you know what, I can buy a Nobel Prize. I'll just lay down a billion dollars and they'll give me the certificate and the ceremony and all the rest of that. And you tell that person, uh, yeah, but that, that's not a real Nobel Prize. That wasn't given to you in, in recognition of your accomplishments. That's just because you're rich and you bribed them with enough money. Uh, and if the person replies, yeah, that's fine. That's what I wanted. I wanted to demonstrate that I'm so powerful that I can purchase a Nobel Prize. And if you stamp your feet and go, that's not a real Nobel Prize, I don't see what pressure there is on that person to say that they didn't get what they wanted. If they're really indifferent to that feature of the object then I don't think it's essential for that person. In other words, the essence depends on what the person wants. Obviously enough, this means that people can disagree, including philosophers. Uh, So suppose my... Suppose my friend was getting married and was a very big fan of the poet Billy Collins, 
uh, and really disliked Michael Sandel and asked me to give his best man, his, the speech as best man at his wedding. Well, it seems like the nicest gift I could give that person would be something written by Billy Collins that would irritate Michael Sandel. So if I paid Billy Collins to write a really great speech, maybe even referencing the fact that here I'm, I'm providing you a, a beautiful poem and a counterexample to Sandel, and my friend is delighted and thrilled by this and so much more honored by the fact that I went out and paid a bunch of money to Billy Collins to, to get to make this for me, that seems like a much better gift for him, even though Sandel will look at it as a corrupt version of a real best man speech. In fact, in that case, the fact that it irritates Sandel is part of what makes it such a good present. But the, the point here really is that in order to figure out what can I buy for my friend, I need to figure out what my friend wants. If it's the kind of thing that I can purchase, if my friend has identified a commodity by liking certain features in it that are perfectly compatible with monetary exchange, then sure I can buy my friend a best man's speech. In fact, the nicest thing I could do is buy my friend a best man's speech. Um, but if my friend really believes that the only speech is the one I write myself, and if I pay someone, or even if I just ask someone for free to write the text for me, well then I will have failed in my task. I will have not given my friend the gift that they wanted. So we have a two-step process for determining what money can buy. Step one, figure out what the person wants. Step two, figure out if what the person wants is compatible with monetary exchange. A result of this approach is that two people can look at the exact same case and disagree about what was exchanged. Sandel might claim that you've bought your friend a corrupted best man speech, while your friend can claim that you got him exactly what he wanted. Now, you might think that this is a pretty weird result. It seems like there just is a fact of the matter regarding the object in question. We can't just claim that friendship is whatever we want. But at least where money is concerned, David doesn't see it this way. Um, but I actually think the point I'm making is extremely familiar. So suppose that I was selling you my old broken down car, um, and I knew for a fact it was never going to run again, um, but you weren't interested in it working as a car. You just wanted to buy some scrap metal. And I sort of tell you, look, you, you know, this car is never going to run again. And you go, oh, that's fine. I don't care. I'm buying it as scrap metal. Well, it seems like the right description of that case is that I'm selling a car and you're buying scrap metal and we're both right. And if you got really hung up on the question of, wait, is the car really, is that object that's being transferred really a car or really scrap metal? Um, that looks like the wrong way to go if what you're trying to figure out is whether I can sell my car and you can buy some scrap metal. And whether the thing counts as a car or as scrap metal has partially to do with what you and I are interested in in this physical object. I'm willing to sell it because it doesn't do the thing that I care about anymore. You're willing to buy it because it still does the thing that you care about. And I think lots and lots of transactions um, meet this description, that someone is selling a thing that has become useless to them to somebody else that is now interested in it. So I think it's actually really ordinary that commodity transactions have it so that relative to different agents, you have two different commodities. Another way of seeing this is that there are really two issues David thinks we usually run together. There's the metaphysical, essential, what is friendship sort of question. But then there's the value-based, what do I want or care about sort of question. Much of what matters to us as normal, everyday sort of people is just about what we want. The metaphysics can be interesting and help clarify issues, but we can do one without the other. Of course, figuring out what we want isn't always easy, though. There's a place I like to go with a colleague of mine that make, has a really good recipe for a dish we like to share together. 
and we notice that they changed the recipe just slightly, and now something crucial has been lost. Sometimes you only notice that a feature of something was essential when it falls away. So say you love, say you thought what you loved was movies, but you always went to the movies on, you know, Tuesday afternoon with your friend. Um, and then your friend moves away, and the theater you like shut down. And you think, what I want to do is go see a movie. And you go see a movie, and it isn't the same, and you don't actually like it, and it's not giving you the thing you wanted. You might reflect on it and say, well, I didn't just want to see any old movie in any old theater with any old person. The thing I really liked was Tuesday afternoon movie time with my friend. And now that those features are gone, I discover that they were essential in them, um, and I realize that maybe I can't get the thing I want anymore. Okay, so we've seen that on David's view, the important thing is that we figure out what we want, and then we figure out if what we want is the sort of thing that we can buy. So far in the story, it's all about the individual person's desires, but there are some things that don't work the same way. Some goods that we want to buy involve recognition by others. Take something like a medical degree. It might be possible somewhere on the internet and given enough money to buy a medical degree. But what people getting medical degrees usually care about isn't just the piece of paper. Among other things, it's necessary that others recognize that the degree is reputable. The same is true of many luxury goods, which people buy in part because those goods are recognized by others as having value. But when the good is no longer recognized in that way, it no longer has the same meaning. This is why people often care more about relative wealth instead of absolute wealth. What matters is that they're seen as having more than other people. If everyone on the street drives a fancy car, the value of each fancy car is reduced. David says that this point is originally from Elizabeth Anderson. So most of the cases we've talked about so far are just cases where I say, well, look, I just want someone to play bridge with me on Thursdays. I don't care what the rest of you think. But there are other things where you, you say, like, no, I want a medical degree that other people recognize as legitimate. I want a marriage that other people acknowledge as the kind of thing that is legitimate. So part of the good itself is the way other people respond to it. And so insofar as those are, so part of Elizabeth Anderson's point is some of those goods are very important for sort of a good life and human flourishing. So maybe the state has an interest in protecting those goods so the people who want to access them can. Um, I actually think that's a really interesting question because if there's a thing that I want that only exists if both I and pretty much everybody else treat it in a certain way, what obligation is there for other people to treat that object in a way that I want them to so I can have the thing that I want? For certain objects that are, right, so for certain things that are really important and for maybe for democratic equality, it'd be important that uh, marriages of many different descriptions be recognized as such by lots of different people. Um, but suppose... You know, suppose what I really, really want is a car that everybody is impressed by. It doesn't seem like the state has an interest in protecting that want of mine and making sure that I can still access impressive luxury objects. Um, but the two cases are structurally very similar, and I think there's an interesting moral and political question about how we should treat cases like that and what the state should do and what individually people should do in terms of their moral obligations. We've seen how it's metaphysically impossible to buy and sell some things. It just can't be done. A different issue is whether we should have a market for some items. One item in particular that receives a lot of attention is kidneys. 
Some people think, right, so uh, some people are currently arguing that um, kidneys ought to be put onto a market in order to increase the overall supply of kidneys. There's a sort of standard economic argument that um, currently in all the places where kidney markets are forbidden, that's creating economic inefficiencies because there are people who would prefer to sell their kidneys and have the money in exchange. And there are people who have money but not kidneys and would prefer to sell that. So that's a classic inefficiency because you have preferences that you can align. And so the general idea is like, well, for important things, right? People are dying as a result of not getting kidney transplants. Maybe introducing a market will increase the overall supply of how many kidneys there are using only the people who want to buy and want to sell kidneys, right? We're just blocking them from doing that. So the, so the general idea is that when, the general intuition at least, is that whenever you have a financial incentive to do something, right? If we give people a financial incentive to sell their kidneys, there will be more kidneys available for people. David and our next guest both agree that this economic argument has problems. Andrew Flesher is professor of family population and preventative medicine and professor of English and core faculty in public health at Stony Brook University. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Organ Shortage Crisis in America, Markets, Civic Duty, and How to Close the Gap. Of the 120,000 people in need of an organ right now in America, 100,000 of them need a kidney. That's a lot of people. But in some ways, it's good that kidneys in particular are in such high demand. Um, one of the interesting things about kidney donation is that um, while it does entail significant sacrifice, both in terms of the surgery itself and the um, uncomfortable effects following surgery short term, um, but also, you know, potentially long term, although that's, uh, you know, studies haven't borne that uh, out at all. And, you know, it's quite possible they never will show um, a correlation between donating one's kidney and long term negative long-term health effects, you know, it's not so sacrificial that one can't do it and go on to live a perfectly normal life. So it really is an interesting kind of case in which people, depending on their blood type and so forth, are uniquely positioned to help out other people. Given the shortage and that donating a kidney doesn't permanently make your life worse, you might wonder why we shouldn't let people sell them. After all, my kidney is my property. I don't really need it. And the present statistics show that people need more incentive to give them up. So why not pay them? Right now, Iran is the only place that has an open market for them. Andrew considers a few different arguments against this approach. The first is that markets attract the wrong type of people. Number one, you are attracting those for whom it might be not so safe if their motivation is to get paid. Um, and this was a problem in this country when it was legal to sell blood between 1946 and 1968. Uh, a guy named Richard Titmus did a study um, comparing blood rates between England and Wales on the one hand, where it was not legal to sell blood in the United States, and found actually not only was blood better quality uh, in the former, but um, you actually had more people registering. The second objection is that commodifying body parts leads to exploitation. Um, you put uh, people who are impoverished in peril because, uh, you know, you're, you're inducing a situation in which um, the wealthy are walking around with the poor's organs and a situation in which people will feel compelled coercively to even give their body in order to get out of poverty. And there were studies, especially coming out of India in the early 90s, when it was still legal to sell organs, uh, that showed that when one did 
give one's organ to get out of debt. One was soon in debt shortly thereafterwards, um, that it actually worsened their, their well-off. And it sort of took the pressure off institutions of social justice to do their work. The last point is that commodification is just bad, that some things just shouldn't be for sale, even if selling them doesn't hurt anyone, and even if it helps some people. But I think today all three of those objections can be reasonably answered, and I talk in my book about ways in which they can. Certainly, uh, tech, the, the frontiers of technology have advanced uh, to such an extent that many of the safety issues can be allayed. And through regulation, we can also um, attend to many of the uh, issues uh, related to putting the impoverished at risk, uh, although that's debatable. Uh, I'm still on the side personally of those who are worried about that. Uh, the commodification question is more of a sacred values question that's, you know, depending on the religious and moral tradition from which you hail. Andrew's main objection to a kidney market is a pragmatic point. Based on research from other areas, there's good reason to think that a market wouldn't actually help address the shortage. Uh, when people give something that's precious of theirs away, they're not doing it to be, quote-unquote, purely altruistic. They're doing it um, to attend simultaneously to an altruistic and self-regarding motive, namely, in the latter case, to be perceived as someone and to form an identity where they can perceive themselves as being an altruistic person. That is to connect to a community, in this case, uh, the community of people who need an organ. And that when you put a price tag on that, you strip them of that very um, intangible and, if you will, ineffable feature of the act of giving that gives it its um, public significance. Andrew's point will be familiar to anyone who has refused money when you've done something nice for someone. Despite the shows I watched as a child being replete with neighbors coming over to ask to borrow a cup of sugar, and despite me always making sure to keep sugar on hand just in case such a situation arises, no one has ever actually asked to borrow some sugar from me. Maybe times have changed, and maybe downtown Toronto has little in common with Little House on the Prairie. But if someone knocked on my door, asked for sugar, and then said, I'll pay you $5, I would be aghast. I don't keep this sugar around as an ill-conceived business strategy, I'd say. But because Hollywood led me to believe that people are running out of sugar daily, so you should always keep some on hand. Well, it turns out that the Swiss feel the same way, except instead of lending sugar, it's agreeing to take nuclear waste. You know, Switzerland, relative to other countries in the world, produces most of its electrical power by availing itself of nuclear power. And, you know, any country that relies heavily on nuclear power is going to have to have a plan for nuclear waste. And in Switzerland, it was determined um, in a way I'm not going to explain right now, but that this mountain near this town of Wolfenschiessen was an ideal place uh, to house that nuclear waste. But the Swiss are transparent. Uh, their government contacted, for moral reasons, all the people living in this town and did a really comprehensive job surveying what their view would be, presenting in that survey uh, evidence to suggest they would basically be safe, but there may be a perception um, that it's dangerous, so that might hurt folks economically. Anyway, they polled how many would be okay with this, and the answer they got back was uh, surprisingly high, actually. 50.8% uh, said they would be okay with it. Uh, that wasn't enough for the Swiss government, so some economists, um, a guy named Bruno Fry, in specific on, on you know, sort of the behest of the government, uh, in, in gradated um, increments, tried to find out how much money the government could offer to make that number of 50.8%, that figure go up so that more people 
were okay with it so that there was more of a mandate. And uh, counterintuitively, I guess, uh, you could you could claim, but but if you think about it, not so counterintuitively, that number didn't go up; it went down uh, to 24 percent. So less than half the people that were okay with it were still okay with it once money was introduced. And there's all sorts of reasons for this. Um, but once you enter into a fi financial contract, you alert that part of um, one's sort of psychological defense me mechanism where one starts not thinking in terms of one's fellow man and woman anymore, but what one has coming to oneself and mechanisms of distrust are awakened. Um, and there are other studies similar in which uh, the, the introduction of money, and it doesn't matter how much, until you get to a very, 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 very high amount, um, which uh, it, uh, precipitated an article that Fry wrote later called, you know, pay enough or don't pay at all. Uh, that's, a, that's a paraphrase. So in a way, this is a bad result. Here we have this organ shortage. Some economists are telling us to incentivize people to donate by paying them, but other research shows that this might actually make things worse. If we can't pay people, how can we get more people to donate? Andrew is clear that while we shouldn't pay people to donate, we can remove various disincentives. For example, we could pay for travel costs involved with donation, or to cover the cost of missed work. But Andrew thinks that there are ways to encourage people to donate that don't involve money. What I propose in exchange is, is simply, um, you know, no coercion at all, very light touch, if you will, where in addition to all the kinds of um, service learning opportunities students often have, for example, at the high school and college level where someone gets to, as I did when I was in college, um, work in a um, homeless shelter or work with uh, special needs children or participate as a volunteer in the Special Olympics or work in a retirement community, that another possible option for someone to fulfill a learning experience requirement is simply to spend time with someone who is undergoing dialysis. And a, a, a percentage of those, arguably a small percentage, but a percentage of those people um, will be motivated to take a further step and, and see if they're potentially compatible with someone who needs an organ uh, in their region or you know, slightly further away. The reason Andrew thinks this will work is that this type of donation has more meaning to the donor. Really, it's the same way we overcome all obstacles uh, to getting to know the other. With exposure to that other's plight, uh, people are motivated. And, and I make the argument in the book that not with regard to most goods, the exchange of which I do think are best explained through normal capitalistic incentives, but with regard specifically to especially precious goods, it means more to most people that those things be enshrouded in the uh, identification as a sacred gift than as uh, exchangeable for a fixed amount of money. We've heard about what money can't buy and about kidneys, which money shouldn't buy. Now we're going to turn to a philosopher who thinks there's another good money can't buy, namely free time. Julie Rose is assistant professor of government at Dartmouth College and a visiting fellow at the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard this year. Her view is that we should care about how goods are distributed, but money isn't the only good. The background for this view is what she calls liberal proceduralism, which is essentially that we should give people important resources and let them decide for themselves how to live. So the distinction between um, resources and specific goods makes sense if you have a kind of background understanding of uh, 
a standard approach to distributive justice, which is um, what I call liberal proceduralism. And so on this approach, the idea is that rather than trying to ensure that everyone has a fair distribution of a bunch of particular specific goods, instead we should ensure that people have um, a fair share of a set of resources, which they could then use to pursue their own particular preferred specific goods as they'd like. So the standard understanding of a resource would then be money. So we should ensure that people have a fair distribution of money, and then they can use their money to pursue the particular goods that they would like as they see fit, as whatever their plans of life are. And um, the state shouldn't be involved in determining the details of that distribution of specific goods. Instead, it should only be um, concerned with ensuring a fair distribution of money. And that's important, this liberal proceduralism approach, because it ensures, well, first of all, it's more efficient than trying to, like, determine a fair allocation of all the various goods, you know, from food to housing to tennis courts to bicycles, you know, like all of the range of specific goods. It's more efficient to just give people a fair share of money and then they can go and pick what they prefer. But it also is a good way of Meeting our two commitments to liberty and equality, uh, we then ensure a fair distribution, but we do so in a way that gives deference to individual autonomy and individual choice. Julie's view is that free time isn't some specific good people will choose to buy with their money, but rather a resource that's on the same level as money. Leisure is usually understood as a specific good, as one of the things that someone might pick according to their particular plans. But I think that this is a mistake and a too narrow understanding, um, and that we should also think about free time as a resource. So it's more like money in that it's something that people need to pursue any plan of life. It's not just a component of some plans of life. The reason to care about free time is the same reason we have to care about how money is distributed. Both are necessary for liberty and equality. The liberal proceduralist approach um, to distributive justice or really to our theories or liberal theories of justice more generally is that we should ensure that people have a fair opportunity to pursue their own conceptions of the good, which is another bit of jargon just to mean um, people's own ideas of the good life or their own um, preferred way of living. Uh, You can think about it very broadly. And so it's important on the liberal view that we have that role for autonomy and then the equality concern comes up in the fairness so that we have a fair opportunity to pursue our own plans of life, whatever they might be. Now, we normally pay attention to the distribution of money or income and wealth when we're thinking about that. So very clearly, if people have different um, bundles of income and wealth, they're going to have different access to the means to pursue their particular plans, their particular conceptions of the good. Uh, But my argument is that we shouldn't only be concerned with the distribution of money if we're concerned about people having access to pursue their plans of life. We also have to be concerned with the distribution of free time and that both money and time are necessary inputs into doing whatever it is that we might want to do. And so, therefore, we have reason to be concerned with ensuring that people have enough free time so they can 
pursue their chosen life plans or whatever it is they prefer to do um, in the same way that we also care about the distribution of money. On Julie's view, money is important, but it doesn't buy us some of the things we think it can. We think things like, with more money, I could take more vacations, spend more time with my family, and pay people to do the things I have to do now, like clean my house. But she argues against this. So I think that this is a mistake for two different reasons. But the basic idea is that I think it's wrong to assume that people can purchase free time. And it's wrong in two ways. One has to do with uh, the labor market, and one has to do with our basic needs. So the first with the labor market is that the objection assumes that people can freely choose their work hours, uh, but that just isn't, in fact, true. So there's this um, phenomenon called overemployment, which would be that people are willing to work for a corresponding reduction in pay if they could have uh, shorter hours, but they're unable to find work on terms that do so. So job contracts standardly come with a set of standard hours. You know, you get an offer and it says you work 40 hours or you don't take the job. And you can't then usually go back to that employer and say, well, I'd really like to work 25 hours. You know, they say, well, is it take it or leave it offer? You can get 40 hours or no job. And so this is a really widespread phenomenon in the labor market. And so basically we can't freely choose our work hours. So even if we were to pay attention to the distribution of income, we can't then automatically assume that people would be able to adjust their work hours so that they have enough free time. So instead, we need a set of labor regulations. And then the second is that the assumption, again, assumes that if we had more income, if we had more money, we could purchase the satisfaction of our basic needs, and then we could uh, have more free time. And I think that this is wrong for two reasons. One is that for some of our basic needs, it's impossible to use money to satisfy them. So as of yet, and sadly, we've discovered no way of using money to have someone sleep for us or have someone exercise for us. And so some of those basic needs, like we just have to meet ourselves and having more income isn't going to make a difference. And that might not matter for most people, but when it comes to uh, time-intensive bodily disabilities, that could be a real factor that, you know, you just have to spend a lot of time on certain things and having more money might not make a difference. And then for in other ways, sometimes it is possible to purchase the satisfaction of our basic needs, but uh, we might think that people could have legitimate objections to doing so um, for a variety of reasons. So you might object to the kind of commodification involved or you might object to the unequal status involved in domestic service and having someone uh, doing work in your home to care for your loved ones, to clean your house, to clean your toilets. You might think, no, like I don't want to be having someone, paying someone to do that work for me. It's important that I do that work myself. And so we wouldn't want it to be the case that the only way to have your fair share of free time is that you must be willing to spend money to hire someone to do this work that either you think no one else should do because it's um, degrading or to do it for someone else or that um, it would change the value of the work you're doing with, say, care for your loved ones. Um, and so in, th in both of those ways, again, we can't assume then that we can automatically use our incomes to purchase the satisfaction 
of our basic needs and to obtain free time. So if free time is valuable, and if it's a good we should directly promote, what sorts of policies will give people more of it? Julie has a bunch of ideas, many having to do with labor regulations. So one, the core one, would be a right to refuse to work more than a certain number of hours. So let's say, and this is, I don't argue for this particular number, it depends on the context, but let's say that people could have their fair share of free time assuming standard bodily and household needs if they worked only 35 hours per week. So then the idea would be you'd have a maximum hours law that gave every employee the right to refuse to work more than 35 hours per week. I think it should be a right to refuse rather than a prohibition on longer work hours because the underlying justification for free time is that we're entitled to time to pursue our own ends, whatever those might be. And for some people, those ends are spending more time in work, either because they enjoy it or they want to have extra income. And so we should, to the extent possible, allow people to work longer hours if they so choose. But importantly, that can't come at the cost of other people not being able to have their fair share of free time. So we should have a right to refuse to work longer hours, and it needs to have various provisions added so that it has sufficient teeth to actually ensure that people can um, exercise that right. Additionally, Julie says that we should have shorter or more flexible work hours for caregivers and people with time-intensive disabilities. Another point is that everyone should have predictable schedules. So in the U.S. anyway, there's a problem of people's work schedules can be set with very little notice and um, And so you can't make plans around them. And so your free time is not really usable to you if you don't know when you're going to have it. So we'd have to have protections for predictable schedules. So Julie is advocating for more flexible hours and predictable schedules. But she also adds that it matters when we get our free time. So the general argument is that we need free time to pursue our conceptions of the good or exercise our liberties generally. But in addition, we have certain liberties, and one of them is freedom of association. And in order to associate with other people, whether that is in our families or in our recreational or hobby groups or political groups or religious groups, you know, association very broadly understood, in order to exercise our freedom of association, we generally require periods of free time that are shared with each other. So, you know, there are some things we could do, like we could be pen pals and write letters, um, and then it would require that we have time at the same time. But most of our exercises of freedom of association do require that we have shared free time, so free time together. And so I think that's also really important that we have measures ensuring that people do, in fact, have shared free time and that this can't this doesn't just like automatically happen and that there are um, significant segments of the labor force that have irregular or what are sometimes called antisocial work hours. And as a result, they have very restricted access to periods of shared free time. So they have to work weekends, they have to work nights, they have to work holidays. And so when other people have free time together, they don't have access to that shared free time. And I think that's a real concern and something that we should pay attention to. So one of those ways of paying attention to that would be with holidays, um, where people actually have the right to refuse to work on holidays, which is something that people in, say, the retail industry don't have. But also, in the book, I argue that 
one way of ensuring shared free time would actually be to have in a modified form Sunday closing laws. So instead, I would, I'd call them Sunday free time laws so that we would have a right to refuse to work on Sundays as a way of providing for shared free time that all of everyone in society to the greatest extent possible, again, with exemptions for necessary, certain types of necessary work, um, would have access to free time that's shared together. So it turns out philosophers can be helpful when thinking about money. We've seen that there are some things money literally can't buy, like friendship. There are things it shouldn't buy, like organs. And that all the money in the world isn't helpful if you don't have time to pursue the projects you care about. This episode was produced by Eric Matheson and me, Jeremy Davis. The music was written and performed by Marku Wainman. Thanks to everyone who spoke to us for this episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Andrew Flesher for speaking to me a second time when I couldn't figure out how to work my computer the first time. This is our last episode of the first season. We wanted to extend a special thanks to all the wonderful folks who've taken time to chat with us, and especially to Marku Wainman, Marcus Dubber, and Giovanna Jankovic for all their help. We're planning on putting together a second season shortly. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, drop us a line at openquestionsshow at gmail.com or on Facebook or Twitter at OQ Show. See you next season. Thank you.